0: I like cornflakes. That's something you should know about me, okay? And I know there's a problem with cornflakes. They're not sexy. They're not sugary. There's no prize at the bottom of the box, okay? Kellogg's recognized that, and a couple of years ago had the most brilliant ad slogan. I loved it. It said this, Kellogg's cornflakes, taste them again for the first time. I thought, perfect. People are going to rediscover the hidden awesomeness that is cornflakes, okay? Okay? Today, I'm going to go over a story, actually three short stories, and one of them, the last one, is The Prodigal Son. It's a very well-known story. If you've grown up in the church at all or Sunday school or youth groups, you've probably heard it over and over again, and it's in danger of losing its zing, its awesomeness today. And I hope that today, after we go over this, you can see it again for the first time. of What a glorious story this is. Let me start with a wee bit of background information. Jesus is hanging around two separate groups. One is a group of religious leaders, and they were called the Pharisees. And the other group was some tax collectors and notorious sinners. These groups didn't get along very well, which makes me love Jesus even more. He was always hanging out with diverse groups. He was always associating with people that refused to associate With each other, okay? And these two groups were like that. They were like an ancient version of the Hatfields and McCoys. So he's with these two distinct warring factions, and he launches into story time. The first story he tells is about a shepherd that has a hundred sheep, and he loses one, and shockingly, he lets the 99 go and he searches for the one. And when he finds that one lost sheep, he throws a party, and Jesus ends the story by saying, That's what it's like when one sinner comes to repentance. There's a party in heaven. And then he tells of a woman that had a coin. Some of you are coin collectors, I found out recently. Had a coin, lost this coin. It was obviously valuable to her. Turns her house upside down, finds the coin, and is so excited she throws a party for all of her friends. It would have cost way more than the coin, okay? And then Jesus ends that story by saying that's what happens with the angels in heaven. They celebrate over one lost soul, over one sinner that comes to repentance. And then Jesus tells the most famous of the three stories about things being lost, the story of the lost son or of the prodigal son. Let me read this one for us. It's the most famous. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his dad, Father, give me your share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son Got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered all his wealth on wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, more on that later, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men, servants, have food to spare, and yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer even worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. And threw his arms around him and kissed him. So, totally got off all up into a space bubble there. <laughs> okay, oh. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He'd rehearsed this speech. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted and said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on them. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house and heard the music and saw the dancing, he called one of the servants and asked him, Hey, what's going on? Well, your brother has come home, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He was indignant, and he refused to go inside. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me anything, not even a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property on prostitutes and parties comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. These stories are so good and they're so important. And I want to dive in deeper to that last story, the the story of the prodigal son, by examining the three main characters out of the story and see what we can learn from them. The first, the younger son. The younger son starts this story that you've heard about by going up to his father and saying, Dad, can you give me my share of your inheritance? This would have been unheard of in this day and age, a complete slap in the face to the father. Because basically he was saying, excuse my language, but he was saying, F you, Dad. I wish you were dead so I could have my money. Can I just have the money anyway? And somehow the dad humbly acquiesced and gives him his share of the estate. Well, then the son goes off to a foreign land, squanders his money on parties and prostitutes, eventually comes to his senses and returns with his tail between his legs. Well, a couple of things about the younger son. First of all, he's a classic example of a person who thinks like this. There must be something better for me out there somewhere. Which is surprising, because he had it good. He came from a solid family with a loving dad, financially secure. He'd forgotten how good he had it. He forgot how blessed he was. This is why gratitude is so important in every single one of our lives. Because gratitude helps us remember how good we've got it. It helps us remember how blessed we are. Think about it. Everything in your life is a gift. We didn't deserve any of it. We didn't need to get any of it. We didn't even need to be created, but somehow God thought the party wouldn't be complete without us, so he created us, and everything's a gift. That relationship you're in, okay? That sunset you saw. The music you heard this morning, the breath you just took, it's all a gift from God. And when we start saying thank you for those gifts, instead of uh, running away from our life to find something better, we'll run into our life and see how good they actually already are. (laughs) Okay? Many of you, and here's the problem though, if you're like me, You're a natural-born griper. Again, excuse my language, but I can bitch right out of bed about uh, various things. I can get from zero to griping just like that. It comes so easy and so natural for me, okay? If you're like me, try this. This is so helpful. Start your day, even if you're grumpy. The moment you open your eyes and you're just grumpy and want to start complaining, start your day by thanking God for just one thing. Not a bunch of things. One thing, thank him for that person you love. Maybe that's lying next to you. Thank him that that person actually loves you, which is a miracle, and you know it, okay? Thank him for, for peaches. Thank him for hummingbirds. I had this amazing moment with a hummingbird in my backyard the other day. Whole nother story, but so cool, okay? Thank him for coffee, that sweet nectar of life. Thank him that it's finally football season. Or if you're having a particular crappy week, thank him that it won't always be like this, okay? Besides helping you to embrace your life that you have instead of looking for a different one, when you practice gratitude, a great side effect also happens. When you start to count your blessings, you'll become more aware of the blesser. There's something about gratitude, I can't completely explain it, but there's something about practicing gratitude that wakes us up to the reality of God being in our life. Ah. Second thing I want to mention about the younger son has to do with hitting rock bottom. It amazes me. I'm 54 years old now, and it amazes me how far down rock bottom is for some of our lives. It is so far down. The younger son, he got pretty low. He goes to this foreign country. He didn't know anybody. Nobody was helping him. He didn't have any friends. He finds himself feeding pigs, which were considered unclean animals for good little Jews like him. And he's so hungry, he starts to look at the pig food and think it's good, which I can relate. My wife and I now make our little dog, our Bichon named Darling that wears diapers because of her birth defect. We love this dog. And because of her allergies, we have to make our own dog food. And we make it out of, like, human food. I know. Okay, it's pathetic. But every once in a while, if I'm super hungry, my wife and I have talked about this, I open the fridge and I see the dog food we made and I go... Man, that's looking pretty good. Okay, it just, it's weird. It's so embarrassing to even admit that. My dog food is actually looking pretty good to me. That's what he was doing with the pig food. That's how low he had gone, okay? He actually got to the place, I think, when he's feeding these unclean animals and, so, and starving hungry. He got to a fate worse than death. A little side note here. I thought about that phrase, a fate worse than death. I can't think of too many things that are fate worse than death, but yesterday's football game reminded me of one: porta potties. That I have a I have a problem with them. Okay, I'm a germaphobe, and I always think somebody's going to tip them over on me because that's happened. Okay, or that I'm going to fall through. And I'm telling you, I have a pho- porta 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 phobia. <laughs> that's what it would be. Okay, I have this phobia. I hate them. I'll try anything not to have to use them. I have to be absolutely desperate. And if you see me go into a porta potty and someone tips it over on me, just put me out of my misery. Just shoot me, okay? Because I don't want to live with that particular memory. Back to the story. I digress, okay? You're going to discover something in your life. You're going to watch people, and this happened over and over for me, you're going to watch people that you deeply, deeply love and care about head down a very destructive path in their life. And they'll reach this point where you look at their life and you think, surely they've hit rock bottom. This must be rock bottom for them. It won't be. You're going to be shocked. They can go even lower, and you're going to have to watch it. But don't despair, because rock bottom, when people finally hit it, it, even though it's way lower than you think it would be, is a very good place to be. Because when we come to the end of our own resources to try to create a good life for ourselves, we come to the beginning of God's resources to give us life for ourselves. We discover that God is actually our rock at the bottom. It's so interesting for me because the Greek word for crisis, which the New Testament was written in Greek, at its root, it means to sift. So, rock bottom is when your life gets so shaken up that you're so desperate. All you do is cling to what really matters in your life. And I'm telling you, that is a great place to be. So if you're at rock bottom right now, don't go lower. Don't dig yourself a deeper hole so you get to the fate worse than death stage, okay? Instead, just drop the shovel, grab hold of God, because he's what really matters. He's your rock at the bottom, and start climbing up, all right? Second character I want to look at is the older son. This guy falls into the category of thinking... Oh, if I can just do all the right things, my Father will accept me. That's what he falls into. He represents the religious leaders because they thought that way about the Father God. If we adhere to these strict set of rules and customs, these religious rules and customs, surely the Father God will accept us. Let me tell you why that kind of thinking is so dangerous. Look at the damage it caused this older brother. First of all, it caused him to resent people. He resented his younger brother. Now, his younger brother was an admitted screw-up. His life was a dumpster fire, okay? And the father still loved him. That irked the older brother. The older brother was going, are you kidding me? This guy gets a party? This guy gets a better party than I've ever gotten? He's a flagrant foul. He's a rule breaker. The younger brother was so resentful of his younger brother. I mean, the older brother was so resentful of his younger brother, he couldn't say his name. When he was talking to his dad about his younger brother, he just says, the son whom you have, the son of yours, okay? You can always tell when you resent somebody because you refer to them in phrases like that. Well, my ex. Well, my old lady. You know, well, that dude. You know, things like that. You can always tell when people start to think like the older brother because they too will start to resent people. They'll say things like this. I can't go to that social event or I can't eat at that restaurant, or I can't shop at that store, because those people own that store, or those people might be there, or those people are throwing that party. They've conveniently, for them, divided all people into two distinct categories, the rule breakers and the rule followers. And they've decided in their mind that God loves and accepts the rule followers, but he rejects the rule breakers. So they think they're... Their best way, that their strictest allegiance to God, that what they have to do is slander and attack and defame the people they deem to be rule breakers. They think that that is their highest form of allegiance to God. Oh, and it's such a sad life. When people get there, when they resent the whole rest of the world, they, it's such a sad way to live. The second thing, that this kind of thinking that the older brother had, the reason it damaged him, he's, he isolated himself. In verse 25, it says, He was out in the field alone. So here's this great, raucous, wonderful celebration going on, and he's missing it. He refused to go inside even when he knew what was going on. He isolated himself. People who think of themselves as morally or spiritually above other people, as superior to others, will miss out on so much joy, so much celebration, so many great friendships and relationships. The list of who is acceptable in their life seems to shrink year by year, and their spiritual pride robs them of so much. My wife and I went out um, with a couple that lives in Bend, but they actually consider this to be their home church, and they listen online to the messages, and they visit us whenever they can. And she grew up in Bend, and she was telling a story when she was 21 years old. She bought a dog for herself, but it wasn't like a husky, like a typical Bend dog dog. It was half Chihuahua and half Pomeranian, and it was a puppy, and it only weighed three pounds, only three pounds. So she got this tiny little harness and a tiny little leash, and she was walking it out in her backyard to kind of train it to go on walks, and then she put the leash down for a minute and turned around to do something and turned around, and a hawk <laughs> a hawk swooped down and grabbed the dog and left, took off with it, and she was looking up in the air, Noodles. His name was Noodles for some reason. I don't know why he laughed. It's actually a tragic little story, okay? But if you knew her, you would laugh too. It robbed her of her own little prized possession, her own little dog, Noodles. When you think to yourself that you are spiritually elite, I am telling you, it opens the door for the hawk of your pride to swoop down and steal joy, steal celebration and steal relationships in your life, even your relationship, your intimacy with God, because when you isolate yourself from other people, you end up isolating yourself from the God who dwells inside of those people. I want to put up a quote on the, the oh, this sums it up perfectly. Okay, let's read this quote. Love is hard. It is, isn't it? Okay? Love is seeing the darkness in another person and defying the impulse to jump ship. Love isn't about jumping ship. Love isn't about superiority or separation. Love is all about staying and connecting and accepting, even accepting people that you believe are rule breakers. All right? Now let's move on to the third person, the dad. The dad's the star of this story, really. Look how many verbs are associated with him. It says he divided the property. He saw this son. He was moved with compassion. He ran. He hugged. He kissed. He clothed. He threw a party. This guy, the father, was a person of not just great affection, but great action. And it goes deeper than this. Check this out. He didn't just divide his stuff and give it to both sons. Verse 12 says that the younger son said, Give me your share of the estate. So the dad divided the property. Here's why this is so interesting. That word for estate and property is also at at its root the word for life and existence. So that verse, verse 12, would be more literally translated this. I'll put it up on the board for you. Father, give me the share of your existence that belongs to me. So he divided his life between them. That's what the story really means. God is represented by this father, and this dad is pictured as this never-ending source of life that just keeps giving to his sons. Oh, man. And then there's the words the father speaks in verse 34. That's the icing on the cake of this story. He looks at his older son and says, You are always with me, and all I have is yours. And in this simple statement, he was reminding his older brother, his older son rather, of his true identity. There's a movie a few years ago called um, The Perfect Storm. It was based on a true story of this hurricane force storm that hit the eastern seaboard. And rescuers in this situation Oh, they have such courage to go out into a storm and rescue people that, whose ships have gone down out in the icy seas. They are so brave. And they said, we categorize people in what shape they're in by four different stages. Alert and oriented times zero, times one, times three, two, times three, times four. Well, alert and oriented times four means you're basically normal. You're in the water, but you haven't had hypothermia, or you're not injured, you know who you are, you're doing fine, you just need rescue. But then it progresses downward. And if you get to the stage where you're alert and oriented times zero, you have no idea where you are. You have no idea who you are. You can't remember your own name. All you know is you exist and you're in great danger and great pain. And I thought about that. So many people are alert and oriented times zero spiritually. They've forgotten who they are. They have no idea of their true identity. All they know is they exist And there's a lot of pain in their life. In the Bible, the voice of God changes all that, though. And the voice of God is sometimes referred to as bat coal, which means the daughter of a sound. Isn't that a cool way to think of the voice of God? The daughter of a sound. Please hear the bat coal today. Hear the Father's voice whispering to you today, reminding you of who you really are, saying to you what he said to the older brother, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. He's telling you who your true, what your true identity is. No matter what the other voices around you are saying, you are a child of God. This God who gives you everything he has, has and will never leave you. And it's not about how many wrongs you do. And it's also not about how many rights you do. It's simply about his love, his stubborn, fierce love for you. And here's my favorite part about the dad. It says, he ran to hug the younger son. Now, think about it. This is where you've got to rediscover the awesomeness of the story. His younger son had cut him to the core, had hurt him more deeply than we can probably even imagine. To have your kid look at you and wish you to be dead? Oh, my gosh, that's a pain it's hard to even imagine. And yet, when he saw him, he ran. didn't walk. He ran to hug him. Oh, my gosh. It's obvious that the dad in this story was super great at forgiveness because a bitter dad would have said, screw you, Junior, find your own place to live, you're dead to me. But he didn't do that. He ran, he hugged, he kissed, he forgave. That's the goal for us is to copy the behavior of the father. It's to be people who forgive. And remember, forgiveness, it's really got a lot of misconceptions. Forgiveness just means this. You hurt me but I am making a choice not to hurt you back. The pain stops with me, all right? Forgiveness is not easy. There's an author and theologian that I admire named Miroslav Volf, and he was from Croatia, and he lived through the brutal war in Croatia where all these horrible things were happening, ethnic cleansing, and it was a war between the Serbians and the Croats, and And he was Croatian, and once he was speaking about forgiveness, and then suddenly a guy stood up, it was actually one of his friends, and says, yeah, you're talking about forgiveness, but could you hug a Chetnik? And a Chetnik was a Serbian fighter, a very famous Serbian fighter that had done unspeakable damage and hurtful things to to Miroslav's people, the Croatians. So he asked him, could you hug a Chetnik? And look at Miroslav's reply to this question. It's so honest. I love it. He says this, I can't, but as a follower of Jesus, I ought to be able to. That's so honest. I love that. Forgiveness, it's tough. It's hard. I'm clumsy at it. I'm not good at it. I spend way too much time in Bitterville, okay? I spend way too much time thinking and imagining how can I hurt the people that hurt me and still appear to be a loving, wonderful, godly pastor? Okay, that's what I do. It's that tough. It's that hard. But with lots of help from God, I'm actually getting there. I'm confessing as your pastor today. I'm actually getting to the place where I can forgive people that have hurt me really deeply. Now, to be honest with you, if you hurt me, here's where I'll start. Like, if you hurt me, I'll start at oh, screw you. I hope bad things happen to you for the rest of your miserable life, you cave-dwelling troglodyte. of the night. Okay, that's, that's usually where I start as a person, just to be honest with you, okay? But I am moving to a much better place, a much softer, more compassionate place, much faster now. I can actually arrive at forgiveness way faster than I used to be able to. I don't imagine hurtful things to happen to you, not any of you. I've well, a couple of you, maybe a couple of, as I'm looking around, oh, a couple of you, I've to forgiveness and stuff, that's okay, okay? But I move so much faster. Now, know this, when you forgive somebody, it does not mean that you excuse their behavior. That's not what forgiveness is, okay? I don't look at somebody I've, that, is, that I've forgiven and say, oh, that hurt they did to me was no big deal. No, it was wrong, and it will always be wrong, okay? And in fact, if we're going to be friends, they're going to have to own that stuff. Okay? I don't excuse their behavior. Neither is forgiveness about forgetting. You don't forget what they've done. Forgiveness is a profound form of remembering. You remember what they did, and you remember that you also chose not to hurt them back. And forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. It doesn't mean I trust people that I've forgiven. I've forgiven a lot of people that I have to have very firm boundaries with. I love them, but I love them from a safe distance, from afar, because I don't trust them At all. They would have to radically change in their life for trust to be won over again, okay? Forgiveness is simply about giving up your plans for payback. We all have Chetniks in our life, don't we? As I talk about forgiveness, I can think of several people right off the top of my head. I go, eh, I haven't quite got there with them. I still wish them evil, okay, to be honest with you. Like if something bad happened to them, my first response would be, oh, goody, okay? Okay? And that's not good. I'm not happy about that. I'm trying to get there. It's really hard because the hurt was so deep. We all have Chetniks, but deep down, if you have a Chetnik, you know, though you haven't got there, you know you could, right? Deep down in your heart, you know God can help you get to the place where you can hug your Chetnik, where you can actually forgive. Start there. You might not be able to forgive him yet, but start just knowing that you could. That's a great place to start. That's a heroic place to start. God can work with that, okay? I want to end with this. The stories I just read to you are strange. They're completely freaky when you know more about them. Think of the shepherd. A shepherd leaves his 99 good sheep to go rescue the stupid one that wandered away from the herd like that person in a horror movie that doesn't seem to hear the scary music and goes, I'll just walk through the cemetery alone, okay? And he goes and rescues this sheep. No shepherd worth his salt would do that. Shepherds back in that day would go, I had 100, I got 99, sometimes you lose one. Kind of cleanses the gene pool anyway, all right? And then there's this woman that loses a coin, turns her house upside down, finds the coin, and throws a party that would have cost her way more than what that single coin was worth. This is crazy behavior. You could say reckless behavior. And then the last story is called the prodigal son, but I think it should be called the prodigal father because the word prodigal, do you guys know what it means? I didn't know what it meant until this week. It means reckless, the title of the sermon, because the younger son was reckless in his behavior and squandered as well. But the person that was really reckless was the father because he just kept recklessly loving his kids, even when they didn't deserve it, just like God does for us. What a cool story. I hope you heard it again for the first time. Let me pray for us.